0: Hello, and greetings from the Mirror Zone. I'm Bryce Skidmore.
1: And I'm David Leskin.
0: And we are here to talk to you about a couple of short stories.
1: Yes, these short stories are, uh, they're going to blow your mind, they're going to wax your car, uh, they're going to do it all for you, and they're going to do it with a short amount of time, hence the short part of the story.
0: You're going to learn a lot about the nature of self-acceptance, evil, and the banality thereof.
1: Yes, you're going to learn exactly what happens when we ignore evil. And uh, also time
0: travel. So yeah, the, the ones who walk away from Omelas. Uh, uh, if you guys like us, uh, don't forget to subscribe and uh, give us a positive review um, if you're listening to this off of the site that allows you to review. So uh, without further ado, um, let's get into our first short story, uh, Ursula Le Guin's The Ones Who Walked Away from Omelas.
1: Thanks, Bryce. Yeah, let's get into it. Um, the Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas uh, it's basically a story along the lines of a lot of other utopian futures where uh, the the narrator, basically a disembodied voice or the voice of the author, is describing to us the utopian civilization of Omelas, and as we uh, go further and further down the rabbit hole of what makes Omelas tick, we find out the deadly secret hiding underneath.
0: Mm, exactly. Now,
1: are there uh, any characters in The Ones Who Walks Away From Omelas? All of the characters in Omelas are, for the most part, either archetypes or along the lines of there once may have been a person like this, but mm. they're not real set-in-stone characters. They're, they're more characters to fill in the spaces for our mind about who populates the city.
0: Exactly. You know, places get names, not people. And the entire thing is based around this sort of uh, speculative utopia. Um, Omelas is... Uh, Air quotes the perfect civilization. Uh, there is no suffering. Uh, there is, it's like it's like if someone turned the John Lennon song "Imagine" into a utopia with one huge difference. Uh, there's no religion. There's no police. There is nothing but just joyously living your life next to your neighbors and and loving them and creating beautiful symphonies and works of art and just loving your life.
1: And, and this prosperity and joyousness, it's not implied, it's actually explicit. If if you are to not maybe, for a second, believe in the utopia you're reading about, the author has several editorial mm. asides mm. explaining to us exactly the level of joy that these citizens feel and, and what mm. activities they're able to do due to their prosperity.
0: Exactly. But it comes at a terrible price, and the price of which is one suffering, abused child.
1: In the, in the case of this story, the needs of the many really do out need, outweigh the needs of the few or the one. In this case, the one wretched child who the misery and success of this whole civilization balances upon.
0: And and it's not like... In Omelas, in its fashion of being weirdly utopic, is not about hiding this from its citizens. It's way more... Every citizen of Omelas, if they if they so desire at some point in their life, can come and view the child uh, that is being abused. They're not allow- allowed to say a kind word to it. They're not allowed to help it. Uh, they're just only allowed to see it to understand where their prosperity comes from. And it's very vague about it, but everyone who goes to see the child is utterly aware that this being suffering is responsible for their society flourishing.
1: That's right. The Devil's Deal only works in this situation if people see the price that they pay and they have to see it fully with naked eyes and not turn away from it
0: exactly and some people can rationalize it to themselves they can go home and uh, and they could get mad or they can try not to think about it but regardless a lot of people will accept their reality and and just go back home except some people
1: that's right some people walk away from loss and and I guess it's This, ultimately, that we're here to hear the story about is the people who walk away and the significance of what that means to walk away from paradise.
0: Exactly. So, uh, that is uh, our plot. Um, Let's go ahead and jump into some quotations. Sure. Sounds good to me. Quotes,
1: quotes, quotent quotables. (laughs) Quotent
0: quotables. So... So uh, was it? There's um, like Luskin said. There are these uh, implorements by the author. Uh, whoever is telling the story is telling it to someone who has never been to Omalos, and the narrator is frequently trying to like urge them to imagine the city. So there's like a lot of there's a lot of ifs, there's a lot of ors, there's a lot of imagines, and every sort of section is led up by a question. Sort of, the first one is joyous. How joyous is one to tell? How is one to tell about joy? how to describe the citizens of Omelas. And these questions come up sort of like, like in beats to like make you question. So the first one is, how to describe joy? Thanks for the lead-in. The narrator starts out saying like, I, you know, let me describe to you the city of joy. And... Like The narrator describes it in this way that sort of uh, pokes fun at a lot of what you would imagine a utopia to be. It's just sort of like this person who the narrator is talking to who's never been to Omelas and can't conceive of a city that is just pure joy where everyone's happy and super chill. This person, the narrator, is constantly urging, like, imagine it. Like, I know this sounds crazy to you because it's just so happy. But one of the problems of our world, the narrator points out, is that we are skeptical of things that are happy.
1: The trouble is that we have a bad habit, encouraged by pedants, sophisticates, of considering happiness as something rather stupid. Only pain is intellectual, only evil interesting. This is the treason of the artist, or refusal to admit the banality of evil and the terrible boredom of pain. And and that really does enforce what you're saying about this. Is Not only are we told about the joy that the citizens are feeling, but it is reinforced by a running dialogue where in order to understand the true length of joy that they have. It's compared to our own society and the feelings that we face. No, yeah, it's like, it's trying,
0: like, the narrator (laughs) is trying to convince us that there is such a thing as a city where everyone's happy and everything's cool. And it's like, you know, I know you don't believe me because, you know, we have been brainwashed as a society to believe that, like, happiness is stupid, that only pain is intellectual or worth experiencing, which I would really love to just send a copy of this story to Zack Snyder.
1: <laughs> That's right. It, it, the idea that there are gradients and degrees of pain. You don't have to be put through you know, full levels of torture, one would assume, in order to receive joy for a movie, that, that being the consequence, or in a fiction in general. And this story argues that, yes, not only is there a cost, but you have to know the cost. You have to really understand... Not just the joy that you're getting, but what whose back's that rest on.
0: The, she brings up, very wonderfully, the banality of evil, and we'll come back to that later. I love that idea of, like, you know, you may be intellectually, like, skewed against this notion, both the people of Omelas and us, like, but for very different reasons. So, yeah, no, it goes on. Uh, she talks about it, like, you know, you, the reader, are still skeptical of this place. Like, she's still trying to defend its existence, and uh, the narrator says... I wish I could convince you. Omela sounds, in my words, like a city in a fairy tale, long ago and far away, once upon a time. And then she goes on to do these uh, really interesting things, like starts to add to the city, but suggests that you add to it in your imagination. Like, uh, perhaps it would be best if you imagined it as your own fancy bids, uh, assuming it will rise to the occasion, for I certainly cannot suit you.
1: Yeah, I mean, the story does a great job of, like what you said... You fill in the blanks of your mind by seeing what is available, what is going on in the civilization, and what is missing. And those pieces they're so relevant to, however, you would view a utopian future that, in a way, it's asking you to imagine what that would look like, what the perfection would look like to you. Yeah,
0: she's she's asking you to like use your imagination to put forth the city. It starts out with this festival that has like horses and like uh, ribbons and youths that are running around so it sounds very like pastoral um but she also attacks that idea where it's like it you know this could be like just some pastoral wonderland
1: or they could have technology they could perfectly well have central heating subway trains washing machines and all kinds of marvelous devices not yet invented here floating light sources fuel power a cure for the common cold or they could have none of that it doesn't matter as you like it Which i love that <laughs> I know, it, it's really great because everyone's idea of what of what that entails, of, of the feeling of um, all of these devices that usually indicate a first world civilization, that indicate a civilization that has fixed a lot of its problems, we do have those items in our civilization. And look at how perfectly joyous we are all the time.
0: Exactly. No, and it's also, it plays too in this weird thing of like, you know don't think that you're that different from these people which has a chilling which is chilling later but like at this moment it's still like oh maybe the people of omelas aren't that different from us also if it sounds too goody-two-shoes for you um the narrator also says i fear that omelas so far strikes some of you as goody-goody smiles bells parade horses blah if so please add an orgy if an orgy would help don't hesitate
1: (laughs) and it does help doesn't it uh it it almost contributes to this idea, kind of seen in in movies like and um, stories uh, where you see a, a future civilization and their prosperity. If you need to have orgies and other things that would never happen out in public to satisfy your need for this being a future, then so mm-hmm. be it. Imagine that.
0: Exactly, and it's, uh, I love it too because it's like it's sort of it's sort of an, an apply to a certain science fiction writer because i feel like a lot of like a lot of people who are fans of science fiction i'm not gonna lie myself included on occasion am very into like the flesh gordon bits like just when science fiction is like kind of sexy and you know there's there's weird like hot future sex in it but it's like i love that where it's like this is a utopic society that's amazing Um, orgies, too. They can have them. It's entirely possible. I mean, it's not wrong to have an orgy. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing wrong with that at all. No. So, there's one thing about Omalos that's interesting, and it's like this is a a word that comes up immediate, is that one thing I know there is none of in Omalos is guilt. Remember that. It'll be important later.
1: I thought at first there were no drugs, but that is puritanical. For those who like it, the faint, insistent sweetness of druze may perfume the ways of the city. Drews, which first brings a great lightness and brilliance to the mind and limbs, and then after some hours a dreamy languor and wonderful visions, at last of the very arcana and inmost secrets of the universe, as well as exciting the pleasure of sex beyond all belief. And it is not habit-forming. Wow. Like, right away, this is wonderfully utopic? It, it's, it's utopic because a lot of these Utopian and dystopian futures described in science fiction. The cost is usually the thought police. Yeah. The cost is freedom of action, but not freedom from, uh, away from guilt from society of not being mm-hmm. able to indulge the inner mind and and the uh, the inner life. And these people have that. So, and they and it's not habit forming. There really are no drawbacks. All right,
0: and it's like it seems no stigma either, which is like the way that we treat substance abuse in most of this country is not very helpful and also the way we look at the way people use most drugs is not helpful. You know, a lot of people think that marijuana should still be illegal. I'm not going to argue with anyone about that. Uh, I'm just going to say it's you know there, there are be- there are worse things that you can do you can put into your body and people put them in all the time and it seems like Drew's is like already better than anything that we have here as it's just sort of makes you feel happy makes your mind sharper and it's not habit forming. Also you know she says in the story People don't use it that much. It's not like a huge crush in their society.
1: No, ultimately, what these people have done, once they find out the lesson of what is making their society utopian, that's enough to sustain their joyousness. They don't need highs because they're living it if they're choosing to stay there. Exactly.
0: And their society does away with these you know, other things that may be sort of uh, symptomatic of your society already not being so well I'm not saying that you can get away—you can you can have a society entirely without religion or law enforcement, but the people of Omelas are so, like, anarchistically good at living together that they have neither of those. They don't need a religion to tell them what to do, and they, they don't really need police to police them because everyone's so chill.
1: But as we did without clergy, let us do without soldiers. The joy built upon successful slaughter is not the right kind of joy. It will not do. It is fearful and trivial. A boundless and generous contentment a magnanimous triumph felt not against some outer enemy, but in communion with the finest and fairest in the souls of all men everywhere, and the splendor of the world's summer. This is what swells the hearts of the people of Omelas, and the victory they celebrate is that of life. I really don't think many of them need to take Druze. Yeah. yeah. Like what you were talking about before, they don't need to police themselves because, you know, everything is permitted, mm. and pretty much all of their decisions are built on that upon celebrating what it is that they have all understood as being Joyce.
0: Exactly. It can almost be like the strange libertarian dream where it's like everyone just kind of does whatever they feel like they want to do and they don't hurt each other. It's really, and it's really cool because it's like this is something that Ursula Le Guin goes for in a lot of her fiction. She's very like, I'm not saying that she doesn't employ violence sometimes in her work, but uh, she enc- she encourages her readers to be skeptical of it. Like, to be skeptical that science fiction needs violence or, you know, it it reminds me also of, like, the Bradbury one. It starts off, we think that there's going to be a huge fight between a, a landed Martian population and these humans who have just arrived. Like, we think that there's going to be, like, something like an external battle, but the battle is not external. It's, like, it's actually a really strange, eerie, peaceful transformation, and it's eerie how peaceful it is. And I feel like Omelas, in that way, is also, is like that. Like, the violence that we see, um, we see no violence right now.
1: That's right. And for the purposes of, of this story and, and the one you mentioned on Mars as well, both of them have this um, two-fold aspects. One of man-fighting self rather than uh, using the normal trope of having to fight the other. That's subverted in both of these stories. Mm-hmm. And also the idea of even needing to fight at all as really being what they're fighting against.
0: Exactly. Our narrator interjects again after that section to just be like, do you believe? Do you accept the festival, the city, the joy? No? Then let me describe one more thing, you know? So it's like this thing where it's like, no, this just sounds too good to be true. Oh,
1: really? Does it sound too good to be true? Because there's something else I should probably tell you about. In a basement under one of the beautiful public buildings of Omelas, Or perhaps in the cellar of one of its spacious private homes. There is a room. It has one locked door and no window. A little light seeps in dustily between cracks in the boards, secondhand from a cobweb window somewhere across the cellar. In one corner of the little room, a couple of mops, with stiff, clotted, foul-smelling heads, stand near a rusty bucket. The floor is dirt, a little damp to the touch as cellar dirt usually is. The room is about three paces long and two wide. A mere broom closet, or disused tool room. In the room, a child is sitting. It could be a boy or a girl. It looks about six, but actually is nearly ten. It is feeble-minded. Perhaps it was born defective, or perhaps it has become imbecile through fear, malnutrition and neglect. It picks its nose and occasionally fumbles vaguely with its toes or genitals as it sits haunched in the corner farthest from the bucket and the two mops. It is afraid of the mops. It finds them horrible. It shuts its eyes, but it knows the mobs are still standing there, and the door is locked, and nobody will come. The door is always locked, and nobody ever comes, except the sometimes the child has no understanding of time or interval. Sometimes the door rattles terribly and opens, and a person or several people are there. One of them may come and kick the child to make it stand up. The others never come close, but peer in at it with frightened, disgusted eyes. The food bowl and the water jug are hastily filled. The door is locked. The eyes disappear. The people at the door never say anything, but the child, who has not always lived in the tool room and can remember sunlight in its mother's voice, sometimes speaks. I will be good, it says. Please let me out. I will be good. They never answer. The child used to scream for help at night and cry a good deal, but now it only makes a kind of whining, eh-ha, ha and it speaks less and less often. It is so thin there are no calves to its legs. Its belly protrudes. It lives on a half bowl of cornmeal and grease a day. It is naked. Its buttocks and thighs are a mass of festered sores as it sits in its own excrement continually. Fuck! And that's the price! That's, yeah.
0: That's, the in this perfect utopia, this is happening. And as for those people that you see come to see the child and say nothing, they all know it is there. Yeah all the people of Omelas, some of them have come to see it. Others are content merely to know it is there. They all know that it has to be there. Some of them understand why, and some do not. But they all understand their happiness, the beauty of their city, the tenderness of their friendships, the health of their children, the wisdom of their scholars, the skill of their makers, even the abundance of their harvest and the kindly weather of their skies depends wholly on this child's abominable misery.'" This is usually explained to children when they are between 8 and 12, whenever they seem capable of understanding. And most who come to see the child are young people, though often enough adults come, or come back to see the child. No matter how well the matter has been explained to them, these young spectators are always shocked and sickened at the sight. They feel disgust, which they had thought themselves superior to. They feel anger, outrage, impotence, despite all of the explanations. They would like to do something for the child, but there is nothing they can do. If the child were brought up in the sunlight out of that vile place, if they were cleaned and fed and comforted, that would be a good thing indeed. But if it were done, in that day and hour, all the prosperity and beauty and delight of Omelas would wither and be destroyed. Those are the terms. To exchange the goodness and grace of every life in Omelas for that single, small improvement. To throw away the happiness of thousands for the chance of the happiness of one, That would be to let guilt within the walls. Indeed, the word guilt recurs twice, and I love that too. Like just that. No, as soon as you, as soon as you actually step in to help the child, that's when you let guilt in. Once you acknowledge that there is something that you can do.
1: That's right, and and not only that, but the idea of joy being integral to their lives. It's being indoctrinated into these children who may never have understood where this joy was coming from up until this moment, and once they realize the futility of trying to change it, of making things any different, and the price that that joy comes with, most balk. You know, Mm. they wouldn't. It's not up to them to decide or how whatever rationalization they need to tell themselves, but the status quo has to remain.
0: Exactly. And what's weird, and the thing that was really weird about that quote is like. You know, some people get outraged, and they wish that there's something they could do. Does that sound familiar? Like, just in terms of, I've said it in my life. Just like, but what can I do? I wish there was something I could do to alleviate the suffering. The very notion of, as soon as you get up and go out and actually do it, like, then you've ruined the facade of joy.
1: That's right. If they let guilt in, then they have to start examining everything they do with a microscope. And they'll realize very quickly that without paying this price, there really is no guilt-free way to have joy.
0: Yeah. No, there's... Yeah, it's like once you concern yourself with the suffering of someone else, it will end your happiness. Is it a happiness that should be ended? This is a question that I think she asks the reader. Like, you know, is there... Like, is there a situation in which most people can live on their lives day-to-day, understanding that, you know, they're... Using computers made in sweatshops or wearing clothes made in sweatshops or, you know, foster care in this country could definitely use some attention. Like, the system can be reworked.
1: That's right. And, and, you know, a a lot of this also, the unspoken thought is, well, how would you react in this same situation if you could make society run perfectly like this? What would be your Mm -hmm. choice? And even worse, if you were born into this society, would you feel that you could change something or would you... Mm -hmm. Walk away from the whole thing.
0: Yeah, or like once you leave that basement to just like look around you at the theoretical greatest city in the world and think that it's horrible what's going on to that kid, but like look at all of this—it's the most perfect thing that could be, with this one exception.
1: And and the fact that it's already being done—would you want to destroy everyone else's joy Mm -hmm. who's chosen to not do Mm -hmm. anything about this? Where did what? Where do you get the right? as an individual to make the choice that that will alleviate your guilt and suffering at the expense of everyone else's joy. Mm-hmm. It's the reverse being asked being just as horrible.
0: Yeah. No, it's a, uh, and I've, I've heard this before, but it's like, uh, like this notion of, you know, sort of a mass accountability. It may sound counterintuitive or even crazy to a lot of people to think that, uh, suffering around the world isn't your fault, but really weirdly, if you, if you can see suffering and if you do nothing about it, or like, don't at least like acknowledge that it's fucked up, like, and acknowledge that you don't want your society to continue to run based on this injustice. Then you are just like these people in Omalos, and a lot of people I think have managed to sort of walk away from this. They've managed, they've managed to keep guilt out, like their own personal guilt, even though they're not the ones holding the child, even though they're they're not the ones punishing it. It's still put to them. Hey, like, you know it's there, man. You know it's there. Like, you know what what's at stake when you make a stink about it. And also, there's, it's a strong argument that gets made. And I think it's just that, well, this is just the way it's always been, which is,
1: yeah. I mean, the idea, yes, the way that it's always been uh, upsetting what is the current status. Uh, if everyone else was choosing to do it, then it must be the right way.
0: Yeah. No, it's, there, there must be something based on this age-old wisdom of, like, neglecting and hurting this one child. And That's, it seems to make their society amazing, but, like, it also might be the weird, like, a weird sort of self-hypnosis.
1: Right. And it's the same also sort of moral experiment uh, thought game of, of trying to say to yourself, you know, if I didn't have suffering, would I be able to appreciate the good that is in the world? Yeah. And, and all these people, the people that choose to stay in as the people who've seen what lies beneath it, they have chosen to, and to undo that would be to undo all of their joy for your own personal expense.
0: Mm-hmm. No, and it's, I feel like it's just part and parcel for like the, the shifting of this story because, you know, she says, imagine this. No, don't imagine that. It's like this, or like, you know, if it, or if you like it like this, then think of it this way. The way that that section starts out that I thought was amazing was in a basement under one of the public buildings of Omelas, or perhaps a cellar in one of its spacious private homes. Like, this could be either a state activity, like this could be like, you know, we lock this child under a uh, city hall and, like, everyone has to come and look at it, or it could just be some private citizen. Like, this is, there. there is no, like, rule for, like, who, what, or where the child is, and but just that it is being tortured.
1: Right, and the fact that it doesn't really matter where it is, it means that it could be anybody's basement, it could be anybody's building, and it might as well be, because they're tolerating it, regardless of where it is and who it's happening to. Exactly.
0: Uh, often the young people go home in tears, or in a tearless rage, when they have seen the child and face this terrible paradox. They brood over it for weeks or years, but as time goes on they begin to realize that even the child that even if the child could be released, it would not get much of its freedom. A little vague pleasure of warmth and food, no doubt, but little more. Which that kind of that really fucks with me in a weird way. Just this idea that you know people will be pissed about it, but they're like, well, yeah, but that child wasn't going to be happy anyways. It's it's already defective. It's already it's already hurt beyond the point. And like, what kindness could it feel? That's not inc- that that's not a small fraction of the happiness we feel. Right. Which it's already like separating yourself from it.
1: Exactly. And it allows for the rationalization it, in the same way that in our world, in order to feel joy every day, many people have to rid themselves or face once and then turn away from the evils that go on every day, the banality of, of evil. And, you know, once we begin to ignore one or two things, it becomes a slippery slope to ignoring much bigger things. Exactly. Exactly. Their tears at the bitter injustice dry when they begin to perceive the terrible justice of reality and to accept it. Yet it is their tears and anger, the trying of their generosity, and the acceptance of their helplessness, which are perhaps the true source of the splendor of their lives. It's a pretty powerful statement because it really drives home the idea of the human condition, of of being able to find joy within suffering and being able to find... uh, additions to your life through loss of morality
0: exactly no and i think that in it's the the really horrible like the other edge of this blade is the idea of you can you can be as happy as the people in omelas as long as you learn to live with and tolerate injustice as long as you realize it's just a thing it's just going to be around just accept it man and that's like i feel like probably the most dangerous thing about omelas
1: yeah, Elmolos is a very slippery slope, especially because all of the extremes have been laid out for us so much. This is not a world very far from ours, as the author has asked us to imagine, uh, a world where everyone has come to terms with this soul-crushing realization and has chosen to, chosen to radically transform themselves and mm. their understanding of, of joy and what mm. it means to them.
0: It is, but not everybody.
1: No, not everybody. That's true. The people who choose to stay in loss.
0: Yeah. No. And this is like, uh, do you mind if I just like, read the last one? No. And this is, uh, it's, this is the last time the author interjects at you with questions, and this is the last time the narrator interjects a question at you. And it's now, do you believe in them? Are they not more credible? But there is one more thing to tell, and this is quite incredible. At times, one of the adolescent girls or boys who go to see the child does not go home to weep or rage. Does not, in fact, go home at all. Sometimes also, a man or a woman, much older, falls silent for a day or two, and then leaves home. These people go out into the street, and they walk down the street alone. They keep walking, and walk straight out of the city of Omolos through the beautiful gates. They keep walking across the farmlands of Omelas. Each one goes alone. Youth, or girl, man, or woman... Night falls, the traveller must pass down the village streets, between the houses with the yellow lit windows, and on out into the darkness of the fields. Each alone. They go west or north, towards the mountains, they go on. They leave Omelas, they walk ahead into the darkness, and they do not come back. The place they go towards is a place even less imaginable to most of us to, to most of us in this most of us than the city of happiness. I cannot describe it at all. It is possible it does not exist. But they seem to know where they're going, the ones who walk away from Omelas. And it's, I love that, like, just the the author's interjection of, are they not more credible? Like, do, do you not believe in them more now that you know that they're all kind of like horribly complicit in this evil? But now let me tell you something that's completely unbelievable. Some people look at the suffering and say, fuck that and walk away.
1: That's right. I mean, we we have these different layers throughout the story of the author making this utopia, dystopia, more real to us. And each time, the way to make it more real is to point out the hollowness that is there until you scratch beneath the surface. But even so, like what you said, we're, we're left with this idea that, oh, everybody who is in Omelas has agreed to this cost? No, mm. not everyone has. And that's what makes this really realistic, is mm. the fact that people would walk away once they truly understand the situation and what their part is in it.
0: No, like really, and I'm not getting into uh, related materials yet, but this is like this um, part of the story reminds me a great deal of two things. The Watchmen, after the whole thing happens in the end where New York is destroyed by a giant psychic squid monster, and you know, and it's all a ruse by Ozymandias, and the only person who has a problem with it is Rorschach, and it's like, no, you must keep this secret for us to have our peace. And he just says, fuck you, keep your own secrets. Like, I'm going to go tell everyone.
1: Never never compromise. Never compromise. Not even in the face of Armageddon.
0: Exactly. Like, I, you know, so I feel like the ones who walk away from Omelas have a weird reflection in Rorschach.
1: Yes, definitely. And 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 also with what Ozymandias says to the rest of them, which is the only thing that they they accomplished was failing to stop him.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And in the same way, that's what a lot of these people leaving Omelas have accepted themselves is really walking away is their only choice because they can't really have any effect on it yeah. other than how it affects themselves.
0: Uh, I, just, I just thought of war games too. The only winning move is not to play. Exactly. Like, I'm actually not going to play Utopia if this is how you do it.
1: <laughs> That's right. And it, the idea of, of nonviolence and acceptance and, and the implications of, you know, it's evil to accept this cost and live among it in a utopia... But what are the moral implications of leaving that instead? Mm. You're still turning away. You're still accepting that joy rests on the idea of other people suffering. Mm. And you're still wrestling with the idea of, of the futility of fighting.
0: That, that's true. And, in, and what was it? We had a long conversation about this earlier. But just the idea of, you know, in, in the strictest, like, these are incidences that happen in the form of a narrative. One of what would be considered a moral failing is just the idea of, well, why don't you change Oma loss? You know, because that's the thing that most of us would think right away is like, how do you change this? The thing that's really hard about that, though, is like, how do you change something that's already set in these vague conditions and imaginings? Like, it's a, it's a utopia that's built in your own head by this narrator using this very strange language to do it. Like, imagine this. Don't imagine that. Maybe it's like this. Maybe it's like that. The only thing that we know for sure is that people in this world are willing to accept fucked up shit if it means society can go on.
1: Yes, and society won't go on if they don't. That's Mm -hmm. the other part of it. For however the rules work in this world, in this universe, the the one that doesn't change is that the the wretched child has to be miserable. And once you chain this, everything will fall down. Mm -hmm. Once you let the guilt in, that will all be destroyed
0: which and i think that's i think it's a very it's a very astute observation that once you allow yourself to truly become to truly take responsibility for and become aware of the minutia of the problems that like for example social workers face then like it is it's very difficult or like you know police officers or like anyone who is involved in you know sort of rehabilitating uh the sick or the addicted once you start to see that see it not as a problem that exists for one person, but a problem that exists for all of us, that is letting guilt in. That is realizing that in some way I am my brother's keeper. And the only thing that I can think of is like, in a, in, a, in a utopia that's so entrenched in this feel-goodery, it seems like the only act of true rebellion is walking away.
1: That's right. And The only act is, is walking away, and and the other act of rebelling is by being true to your morals, regardless of whether feeling guilty makes mm. you never feel joy again. Mm. You've taken that responsibility upon yourself and you can't turn around without ignoring it completely.
0: No, and it's, and Le Guin is like, she's beautiful at doing this because she starts off with this sort of admonishment of violence. Like this, you know, violence doesn't always have, to, violence and darkness don't always have to have a place in your story. Like, but then she drops this where it's like, oh, well, but the mere acceptance of allowing someone else to suffer and putting it out of your mind is worse. That's right. Moral like, ambiguity is itself a crime. So Omalos does have violence. It just has violence against one person, and the act of rebellion is walk is just being like, I'm actually not even cool with that much violence. It, it, it is a fraction of the amount of violence that can happen in this society. I'm still not cool with it. That's right. It's about like I feel like always saying no.
1: And and in a way, even if those people didn't walk away, the act of the reason that they end up walking away is that they have reacted to this realization by it taking the joy away from them. That joy is never going to come back now that they've seen what the cost is.
0: Yeah. No. And I love that line where it's like, sometimes an older person who hasn't even seen the child in years will fall silent for a day or two and then just leave. No, not say a word. Just like, Oh, I've been thinking about this since I was eight or 12. I've known, I've known that this child's been there that long. Or, God, or if you're an older person, God knows how many children. Like, how many single children have been ushered into that fucking room? And you just sit, knowing that it's there, but
1: enjoying the festival. That's right. Enjoying
0: and, your Druze.
1: Yeah, the elders, the fact that they're able to enjoy all this after knowing that it's potentially happened to many people, the it's the same sort of weight and guilt that I'm continuing to allow this to happen, and I know what happened before. It's it's this the tolerance of evil.
0: Yeah, oh, So that's uh that's the ones who walked away from omalos There's a was it that phrase the banality of evil. I wanted to bring it up because um, so this story was published uh in New Dimensions three in 1973, uh, but a couple of years before that came out in 1963. Uh, Hannah Arendt, um, this wonderful philosopher. If you ever get a chance, she wrote a great deal of amazing books. Uh, The Human Condition is my favorite. Uh, She also wrote this book called Eichmann in Jerusalem, which is uh, all about the trial of Adolf Eichmann uh, when he was captured and then brought to Israel for trial for war crimes. And this dude was, uh, he was the one who was probably most responsible for the uh, logistics of the Holocaust, of how to get uh, detained people into concentration camps, how to get them murdered, how to get the bodies pro basically just the, the pencil pusher who made this all happen. And not only that, she also talks about, you know, the vast populations of Europe who were ignoring it, who wouldn't do anything. And uh, so I'm just going to read you a bit from uh, Eichmann in Jerusalem. Uh, this is about, um, Eichmann as he's going to the gallows. Uh, under the gallows, his memory played him the last trick. He was elated and forgot that this was his own funeral. It was as though in those last minutes, he was summing up the lessons that this long course in human wickedness had taught us. The lesson was fearsome word and thought defying the word and thought defying banality of evil. Yeah. Just this. Yeah. No, it's, it's something for something to be evil. It doesn't have to be epically in your face all the time. And you know, working out its evil machinations, it's not always Chernabog eating the demons that come out of his stomach. It's not. It, it's not always uh, a grandstanding Christopher Lee as Dracula. Sometimes evil is just the shit your government's doing. It's sometimes the child in Omalos. Like um, there were children that people turned their backs on throughout history and positive. So it it is like the idea that you know evil doesn't have to be super. Like evil doesn't have to be combated necessarily with guns or with force. It has to be combated with understanding, acceptance, and or not like acceptance. Like accept that accept that evil things happen, but like accept that you are seeing something evil and understand that it is not cool.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's coming to terms with your particip- participation, whether that's through willful uh, ignorance or or whether it's just allowing it to happen. But either way. It's still making a choice, even through inaction, to allow evil to exist, despite knowing what good and evil are inside. Yes,
0: and I think, and Le Guin, I'm sure she took she took that phrase specifically for this reason. It's this a parallel drawn between uh, Adolf Eichmann and everyone who lived in Nazi-occupied territories who turned a blind eye to massive injustice because. Maybe the trains ran on time. Maybe they just didn't want to rock the boat. Maybe it didn't matter because it wasn't their kid.
1: That's right. And But, but in the end, evil begat evil. And in one way, one person allowing or ignoring evil while it's going on spreads to many. Mm. Until we're talking about countries. We're talking about large groups of people that, when asked afterwards, knew the difference between right and wrong. And just couldn't have understood how it happened on their watch. Mm or chose not to. So, uh, do you have any uh, reactions? Uh... Reactions, yes. I mean, what what really stands out for me in the story is, it's the idea of the sliding scale utopia and the sliding scale dystopia. You can change the factors involved, you can change the devil's deal that's made between the citizens, but in the end, whether it's one person suffering or a thousand people suffering, you're really just talking about negotiating at that point about what you're willing to let happen
0: yeah no how like exactly how much how much injustice am I okay with as long as everything around me is fine
1: and 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 the the scarier implications of this story which is if you've been following this whole along this whole time with the author saying does it seem real yet to how about now mm-hmm. does it seem real yet is yes when when you understand that suffering is at the root of the cost of this civilization, it absolutely makes sense yeah. that the people who've come to terms with it are full of joy.
0: Mm-hmm. No, it's and after all of that, it's almost like the joy. Like I'm not gonna say hypnotic. You know, it's not like you know a society where everyone's been mind controlled. It's a society that's engineered around a shared deferral of a, a shared deferral of this guilt. We just won't let guilt in. Like this is not. We can't have that here in Omelas because. Guilt, the understand that you're a party to something wrong, that's the thing that makes you unhappy. That's the difference between a utopia that's the difference between a utopia and a dystopia, or in this case it's both.
1: That's right, because you know, this deal wouldn't work if the wretched child was trapped in the basement and nobody knew about it. Mm. What cost is that? They don't know what where their joy is coming mm. from. But, but the staring at the implications of what they've done and choosing to continue to put that upon generations mm-hmm. that come afterwards. Mm-hmm. These children who have never been for the first time, they've been born into joy, so they only know what comes of the cost. Mm-hmm. And the parents are choosing to inflict that on their children as well.
0: Yeah, and it's, and it, it's really fucked up. It is, agreed. Super it's fucked up. Super fucked up! Can we just say, fuck these people, except for the ones who walk away? Omalas boo! Ew. was <laughs> it? Um, do we have... Uh, so what are some good uh, related stories? Like, I mean, if you liked this, what are some good stories that were influenced by the story or that you think have similar elements?
1: We, we talked a little bit about The Matrix having a great deal to do with this, didn't we? I mean, yeah. the, the ideas of... Um, you know we, we we have the classic scenes of morpheus explaining to uh neo basically why this perfect you know not perfect to humans but perfect to robots for keeping people in a dream state mm. for their batteries for their energy that the whole power system explained in the idea of allowing evil to happen there's many people who escape from the matrix who continue to want to live in it after they see it, in, in yeah. many ways, the same as the people Cipher, who see right Yeah, Cypher
0: is just like, fuck it, I want to go back to the machine. The machine wasn't as bad as, you know, and that's a weird, a weird thing. One of the, can you imagine someone who walked away from homeless wanting to go back? Like, what would the world have to throw your way? Um, and this is why I think when the story ends, uh, Le Guin says, we don't know where they go, but they go to a place that's even more incredible like because, because how could they it, leave yeah,
1: this paradise
0: exactly but like even the conception of this paradise is so like so mind-boggling that you can reduce suffering in a society down to just one person and then to not accept that to go be no to be like no it is it is unacceptable for even one person to suffer we don't even know where those people go we don't know what happens to a society or societies um of people where they don't accept the suffering of any Or even if those societies exist because what exists beyond Omelas is already such a far-out thought exercise where you've reduced suffering to one. Once you reduce that number to zero, I can't even tell you what that looks like.
1: Exactly, and and the Matrix has some really good parallels as well because they leave the utopia of the Matrix for what seems like a terrible hell on Earth for where they end up living outside Mm -hmm. of the Matrix. And in some ways, the cities of the real are almost as unimaginable as uh, to those people leaving the Matrix as people leaving Omolos would be. It's like, Mm -hmm. well, yeah, you have your freedom, but you're going to eat gruel every day and fight robots that outnumber you (laughs) a million to one. And the only way that you can choose to do that in the Matrix is to go back in and have your mind wiped to forget the guilt.
0: Or, I'm sorry, I'm thinking also of Matrix Revolutions, or if it would help you to live outside of the Matrix at an orgy. (laughs) Exactly. Because, you know, they have the huge rave orgies. (laughs)
1: Yeah, well the rave orgy, in my mind was uh, I hate it, but <laughs> it does prove a point that that, that this is basically mm-hmm. how they're able to get along with their freedom is to say, well, then we'll we'll screw our way to happiness. Whatever yeah. happens, we own our tomorrow. Yeah. And in the same way I, I think the people of Omanwas are doing that as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and there's actually it's something else too that you brought up where it's like uh, this so it's another thing that I think makes the Matrix somewhat uh, relevant to this conversation is you, you also have the that stuff that the architect said where it's like just in the it, just in this set system that they have designed to be the most acceptable to the greatest number of people, like the first Matrix was a paradise but no one believed it so they redesigned it to look like you know the early thousands, um, but they couldn't it was it was not redu- it was not reducible to zero there were always a number of people who rejected the system, which is why they had his eye on.
1: Exactly, and and Omos is the same way. The only way that people will accept the system is they confront the evil head-on and then walk away either splintered or ignorant.
0: Mm-hmm. Or defiant.
1: Or defiant, yeah. exactly, and that's how you end up with the with the freedom fighters and the people that leave Omelas entirely as well.
0: Which that would be amazing if there is, uh, you know, I know it's like this. It's a wonderful bit of speculative fiction that doesn't need a sequel, but I just love it if some, just some band of uh, refugees, like, made their way back to Omelas to liberate the poor child.
1: <laughs> it, one could imagine that sequel, you know. The, and it
0: would turn it would turn the world into Mad Max in this scenario, but like,
1: I'm yeah, fine with that. <laughs> Yeah, we've definitely got an Omelas reloaded or an Omelas Thunderdome mm-hmm. situation at that point. But the, the narrator leaves it so loose that we can make those kinds of uh, you know wild speculations about what happens after.
0: Mm-hmm. No, and I'm sorry. I brought it up earlier. I in Jerusalem. It's not science fiction, but it's it's riveting. It was originally published uh, um, in the New Yorker as a series, like Hannah Arendt, like went to Jerusalem to observe the trial. And it's just it's super fascinating. If you if you want to if you want to just understand how people could stand idly by, uh, and ineffectually allow evil to happen, this is a perfect story for that. There's also uh, a wonderful anthology. It's actually where I first read the story, um, but it's full of a bunch of other great dystopic stories. It's called a uh, Brave New Worlds. It's edited by Joseph Adams. This is also the first book where I read Harrison Bergeron by Kurt Vonnegut. It, There's it a good game in there. There's so many good stories. Uh, but yeah, so that's good
1: let me make a a recommendation for the um, Marvel comic series The Sentry Uh, Mm -hmm. the main character is basically an analog for Superman, with the difference being that where Superman in the movies and the DC comics is all about being a good Boy Scout and trying to save whoever he can the Sentry's character, while having similar powers, has a different method of figuring out who he's going to save he has a computer that works out the probability that best uses his time for the best amount of people saved. But the added bonus from that being that he also knows, by making the choice of who to save, who he's allowing to die. And it's sometimes thousands, and sometimes the trade is an equal amount of people dying in one way versus mm-hmm. a, di- a different terrible way. And and I feel like that's. fits like real I, I stopped this. a
0: bus crash, but I missed the falling elevator because I can't be in two places at once. Exactly.
1: And, and uh. once you take those you know, those numbers even further out, if you're stopping a boat from sinking uh, into an iceberg or hitting another boat versus stopping a plane crashing to the ground, you know, who knows if the casualties are going to be even at all different. They might be exactly the same. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, then at that point it becomes, well, there's these famous people who are on this place that I could save, you know, and it, it basically all boils down to the same idea of who is more important for... Everyone's benefit.
0: Yeah, no, and it's I I feel like and that's an, an incredibly that's an incredibly relevant example I think because it's like they, there's an idea in Omalos of like well we have to accept the amount of suffering the least for one person or like we have to accept the least amount of suffering for all as opposed to one individual but when you get into the nitty gritty of this where it's like if you have the ability to Stop these things. How do you decide what suffering you allow and what suffering you don't? Because that's that's a thing that's weird to me. I've always thought of suffering as just a thing that happens. Like you can inflict it on yourself, but like the idea that someone who could someone could stop it, but you have, but they made a choice not to.
1: That's right. There's always a choice that you're making by not making another choice, and it's always shades of gray. There's never black and white for what situation you should do, for what equals good and evil. Exactly.
0: Um, is it last uh, last um, story you should check out if you uh, liked this one I would say the giver
1: definitely the giver it's a great uh, comparison for for the ideas of how we experience good and evil and and how we choose to either accept it or ignore it yeah no, and if, if you haven't seen the movie or
0: the book the giver is about a society that is um, it, it is apparently utopic on the outside um, people just seem to be stoked all the time they have uh, one job that they go to. Um, this one kid, he becomes the receptacle for all of the memories of everyone. So this kid is the one who learns that colors were a thing, and that suffering was a thing, and that beauty was also a thing, but like, they, they had to bury these memories in one person because if it was shared by the entire society, everyone would collapse because of you know, the weight of understanding uh, exactly what is at stake here. And uh, people do leave in the giver's universe
1: exactly and leaving is an option it is an option because the giver is in some ways both the wretched child and the people that take it upon themselves to accept the responsibility Mm -hmm. for that happening
0: yeah now this is like i feel like that's a really wonderful story to pair with this because they share a lot of the same elements and like i love that idea of like you know the person who is the receptacle of knowledge in the society is also the one who has to deal with the suffering the most, so it's like you are simultaneously the narrator and the child of ones who walked away from home loss. That's the giver,
1: exactly. And and the the giver experiences all the highs and lows, most uh, and a lot of lows, to be honest. In order to allow the rest of society to never have to know those lows, even though they exist outside mm-hmm. of the mind of the giver, mm-hmm. they might as well not. In the same way that the wretched child might as well not.
0: Yeah. And it's and I love it too because like we have this split where it's like there's the kid who's the spoilers by the way there's there's the kid who's the giver and decides to walk he's like no this is fucked up I'm going to save this child who's marked for euthanasia and we're just I'm taking this kid and we're bouncing out of this fucked up society and the giver's like I'm not leaving I have to stay because these people are going to be experiencing pain for the first time and guilt and horror and if there's no one here to help them deal with it then were fucked. Which, I like that though, because that's a, a weird thing where it's like, in Omelas, the only thing you can do is walk away, that's like the only real form of defiance that this dystopia allows. Uh, in The Giver, you can you can stay, you can work to change it.
1: There is hope, definitely, in The Giver, and, and I think with Omelas, maybe it's left to your own devices to think maybe mm-hmm. what happens to the people who leave Omelas and if they ever do return. It is.
0: And I think it's because we have, this is a story without characters. Like, there is a hypothetical child, there are hypothetical townspeople, there's hypothetical philosophers. It's everything, it's just a speculation. Like, and it's always an if, or an or. Like, her language is so conditional as to make this city already, like she said something in a fairy tale, or almost just like a, a mirage, like a linguistic mirage that like, the, the closer you get to it, like, the further away it seems, and she has to keep throwing you bits to, like, keep you there. So uh, that was Ursula Le Guin's The Ones Who Walked Away from Omelas and uh, our uh, related titles, which uh, you should check out. Um, we're going to take a short break, and we're going to be back to talk to you about Robert Heinlein's All You Zombies. Thank you for listening. Be sure to look us up next week when we will be talking about time travel, gender, poverty, and Robert Heinlein's All You Zombies. Take care, and if you like what you hear, please share and like and subscribe. And don't forget to check us out on Facebook at Greetings from the Mirror Zone and Twitter. I'm at Bryce, B-R-Y-C-E underscore Skidmore, S K I D M O R E, and Luskin can be found at Alfred Packer. Thank you very much, and have a wonderful day.